welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. The scripture today as we continue our journey through Hebrews chapter 11. It brings us to verses 29 and 30 today. Actually, all the way through 31. Let's take that as a portion of scripture today. Let us hear together the word of God. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. God's holy word is before us. May he speak to us in power today through it. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we are grateful that once again we are able to come under the teaching of your word in a house of worship and also with our gathered community online. We thank you, Lord, for the the truth of the word that's going to be moving through us. We pray for, as Jarvis prayed, deeper holiness and deeper obedience in your church in challenging times. But we also do pray for our nation Today, across this country, churches like this are pausing in prayer at pulpits like this because today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And Father, we're praying, as we have for a generation now, that the Holy Spirit would bring conviction and revival to this land. It is the only way that your hand can stop the human wave of atrocity against the unborn in this, in this country. The loss of millions and millions of lives to the selfish will of man in our culture is enough to invite deep judgment from your hand alone. And in fact, Lord, it would be enough for you to have brought the same judgment upon us that you brought upon Babylon or any other proud culture. Father, we pray for mercy upon our land, and we pray for revival upon, among our culture. Oh, that the mightiest revival to ever arrive on planet Earth would happen here. So God, we pray for that, and we pray that even now you would strike hearts that are considering abortion and that you would lead them instead in the pathway of life. We thank you for the sacred text before us. We pray that it will be opened rightly and that the Holy Spirit will teach us about faith in times of crisis. Strengthen us, we pray, through the preaching in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. We continue in the the book of Hebrews only through one chapter in this series, and that's chapter 11, the chapter of faith and the heroes of it. Remind you that the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish believers or Jewish seekers. 
and they were struggling over trusting Christ as Savior and becoming born again, or if they were born again, they were struggling with walking publicly with the Lord because the culture that they were in was a very hostile culture to the things of God. Their back was up against the wall of a hostile culture, hostile toward biblical faith. For a Jew to become a Christian in those days, they immediately faced two sets of enemies. One was their old Jewish people, who would defy them and persecute them because of the traditions they were leaving and the gospel they had embraced. But also the Roman culture was increasingly becoming hostile to anyone who became a follower of the way of Jesus. This book was written in the mid-60s A.D., when persecution was beginning to escalate and the culture was becoming uh, more deceived and more filled with corporate anger against people of the way. For a Jew at that time to become a Christian was nearly always costly. It often cost him his friends, his family, his synagogue privileges. He could no longer be part of the faith community in which he'd grown up, even though he had found the Messiah that that faith community was searching for. Often men and women in the Jewish community would lose their social status, their friendships, their family connections. They'd be disowned and they may have lost their professional lives so they couldn't support their families. It was a dangerous decision to make to trust Yeshua, Jesus, as Savior in that time, particularly if you were Jewish like the readers of Hebrews 11 were. So the writer writes to encourage them. And he writes to him to show the supremacy of Jesus as being worth any sacrifice. But he also writes in Hebrews chapter 11 to show them that there were many other brave men and women whom they knew from their Old Testament history who had gone before them, who had trusted Jesus Christ and who had paid a price as they looked forward to the Messiah who would eventually come to that cross. And so these are stories of faith to build up the faith of the readers of Hebrews. Now the scripture says that everything in the Old Testament was included in that book so that we in the New Testament era could draw encouragement and example from it. And so Hebrews 11 was inscripturated for us because we too face our battles of faith, our opponents of faith, our culture of criticism, our cancel culture regarding believing in Jesus Christ. Now, some today might think that because of things happening in our American society, that we are speeding into a time of persecution like the Hebrew Christians experienced. I don't think we're speeding there, and I don't think we would use properly the word persecution to describe the pressures that we are sensing. I don't think that would properly honor what the word persecution really means in our world setting. Persecution today is experienced by many believers around the world, however, though it is not yet in classic form visited us. It could be coming. But I want to draw your attention to the 2021 World Watch List, just published. It's published every January by Open Doors Ministries. They follow persecution around the world, persecution of Christians. And they list the top 50 countries where Christians have been the most persecuted and they face the hardest times in the coming year. 
The report notes that 309 million Christians living in places around the world live under very high or extreme levels of persecution today. Now that number is up from 260 million in last year's list. That is a massive shift. It is mostly due to what is happening in India, which has become a massive persecution center due to the state-declared religion of Hinduism being dominant. Also, rising issues in Africa. In fact, in Nigeria, which has now made the list, here's the top 10 if you're wondering. North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, and India. Top 10 persecuting nations. But of those that will actually experience physical martyrdom, The latest report last year showed that three out of every four people worldwide who've lost their faith in the last year for Christianity, for their faith, lost their lives rather, for their faith, they lost their lives in Nigeria. It has become a death spot, and it has been for well over a decade. I was in Nigeria 15 years ago as part of my radio ministry. And I traveled there in a semi-secret trip to meet some of the persecuted pastors, the men and women who led that nation in its emerging faith. I was struck and marked like I will never, ever live out of what I saw there, the places of massacre that I stood in there, the graveyards that I prayed over there, the stories I was told there, the faces I looked into of surviving widows who had lost their husbands as pastors to machete attacks and church burnings. And I met men and women who in the face of that persecution were moving in boldness back into the highlands of murder from which they had come to take the Bible to yet more lost people. Changed me for life. I met many. I will tell you just one of their stories later in the message today. Mighty people of faith, people who truly had their back against the wall and trusted Christ. Now, even though we don't suffer like they do in any shape or form, there are still times in our world that we will suffer and have our backs against the wall because 1 John 5, 19 says, in any society... The Bible says that we are of God, 1 John 5, 19, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And therefore, in any society, persecuting or not yet there, like ours is not yet there, you as a believer, because you have a supernatural enemy, will find yourself with your back against the wall in some way over and over again, and your faith will be on the line. Some of you may be there today in relationships or workplace settings or other things. This message is for those times. It is a message that takes us into the faith challenges of the people of Israel in verses 29 and 30, the crossing of the Red Sea and the falling of the walls of Jericho. And then finally, into the life of a pagan person coming out of paganism into faith and the price she paid and the risk she took to stand for the God of Israel. There are three stories. We're going to go through the first two today. The first involves standing with your back against the wall of danger, of danger to life itself, perhaps. 
That's the Red Sea story. The second is the story of with your back against the wall of challenge, of something God has called you to do, but it's beyond your ability to do it, and only he can make it happen. Next week, we'll visit the story of Rahab, which was the story of responding when your back is against the wall of conviction, knowing what you ought to do in a completely hostile situation and still doing it. I'm going to preach today in the same way that I did last week. I'm going to take each story and go through the story with you. And then at the end of that, I'm going to talk about a sense of how this could apply for you and for me. So let's get into the text. The first story is a story that talks about what to do when your back is against the wall of danger. When your back is against the wall of danger, and the people of Israel certainly had their back up against the wall of the Egyptian army coming down on them, wouldn't you say? So the writer shifts from the great luminaries of the faith, Moses and Jacob and Abraham, and now he goes to the people of faith, the the normal everyday people of Israel facing their first great crisis. And he talks about the story of their discovery of faith, and then I'll give you the sense of it. Let's go through the story. Now, obviously, if you've been around the Bible, this is one of the most familiar stories in Scripture. But if you haven't, uh, I'll review it again so that you understand it. This comes on the tale of what we learned last week about Moses and his deliverance ministry to Israel. Backstory. The people of Israel have been called into existence through Abraham. They've been given great promises about what he was going to do. Give them a land called Canaan and and bring a savior, the Messiah, through the line of Abraham, through the line of Israel, a savior for the world. But they had fallen under bondage in Egypt four centuries before, as God had predicted. Severe bondage, 400 years of waiting on the promises and suffering under the, the boot of a secular world. Finally, God raises up a deliverer, as he had promised, in Moses. We studied that last week. Moses responding to the call to deliver Israel, standing in great faith through ten great miracles. And finally, the tenth miracle persuades Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. Let them out of their slavery. Let them out of the land of Egypt. All of that has happened. And now they they have journeyed out of Egypt, gone south past the river, and now they're journeying down by God's design to the tip of what is known as the Red Sea. It's known there today as the Red Sea. They come up against the edge of the Red Sea and they face this massive um, uh, body of water, but they now turn around and they see a cloud of dust on the horizon. What had happened? Pharaoh had hardened his heart yet again. And he regretted his decision to let the people of Israel go. So he massed his army and his chariots and he was coming full speed from the north to to Israel to take them captive again. The people of Israel are standing with the Red Sea before them on one hand and their back up against the wall of Pharaoh's encroaching army on the other. And it looked to them to be a humanly hopeless situation. They were not people of profound faith, but they did face a profound crisis. Now, by the way, some who would claim that the Bible is not to be trusted for years have tried to teach that this event didn't happen at the Red Sea. It happened at a place called the Reed Sea, which was a little swampland near the area, a place that was full of reeds that was only some feet deep, not deep at all. And they claimed that what really happened was there was was no parting of the water. The Israelites just got up the guts to wade through the Reed Sea. 
They got to the other side, but the Egyptians with their heavy chariots, heavy wheeled chariots, got mired in the mud and couldn't pursue them. How the huge army of Pharaoh drowned to death in a few feet of water, they never got around to explaining. But no, this happened at the Red Sea, which of course is a body of water well known. This was a massive obstacle. It was 1,300 miles long, 200 miles wide at its widest point, and 1,600 feet deep on average. A massive obstacle. God had led Israel to the top tip of it, but in order to get over to the land that he had called them to go and to escape Pharaoh's armies, they had to cross the top tip, which was still several miles to cross, and there was some depth to it. They were facing a true challenge. Don't let anyone deceive you. The waters of the Red Sea lapping at their feet on the one side, the armies of the Egyptians clouding the dust on the other, and in the midst of that, they had a faith challenge. Now, they didn't handle it well in the beginning. If you look at Exodus 14, the people stand and look at Moses just as they had a number of other times and said, what have you gotten us into now? To put it in biblical language, they said, quote, is it because there, are no gr- there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? I just love the sarcasm in the Bible. They were upset, they were fear-filled, and they were about, essentially, to give in to the Egyptian army again. The mood among the people was, well, but let's go back to Egypt as slaves rather than die here on the beach. God's let us down even as he let us out. But Moses stands And God had spoken to him and said, listen, if you stand, you will see my power work. I will keep my promises. This people will have a way through. And he tells Moses to stand there and then raise his staff over the water and the waters would part. Moses obeyed in Exodus 14. He looked out to the fearful Jewish people and he said, do not fear, Exodus 14 verses 13 and 14. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. What a principle. You're going to see it all the way through this whole passage. And so he did. Moses stood and he believed he would see something he'd never seen before. The parting of a sea. He stretched out the staff And all of a sudden, God brought an east wind, and he walled up that water on both sides. So it stood in walls, churning on each side. But there was a pathway through the northern tip of the Red Sea. And the Bible says it was as if the sand was bone dry. It was a miracle of God. Now, Moses may have stepped into the water first and led the way and stood in the middle with his staff held high, I don't know. But the people of Israel said, did have faith in that moment. It says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on a dry, as on dry land. They had to make a decision. And they did find faith in that ninth hour. They did step out and they did put their feet and their sandals on the dry land and they started to walk and they started to move through it. And they had to do it by faith all the way to the other side. Now, if you're a person not used to living in miracles and not used to trusting the invisible God, what would you have been thinking as you got about halfway through? These walls look pretty shaky to me. I mean, they're a few hundred feet high, but how can I be sure that they're not just going to start to crumble and come right down on us right in the middle of this situation? So they did have to have faith. 
They had to have faith to step out. They had to have faith to keep walking. And they had to have faith to go all the way to the other side. And God says, God says in his word that all two million of them, fearful or bold, got to the other side. Like I said, one of the themes of this chapter is in great moments, God will give you the power to have great faith. It doesn't matter what your track record was. So I just love that about this people. They did have enough faith because God was all they needed. So it was a mighty miracle. They got to the other side. The scripture also says the Egyptians finally reached the edge of the sea. They saw the same parted water, but they were not people of faith. They didn't know what explained it, but they thought they were proud enough to go into it just like the Israelites did. They went in in presumption. They went in in human pride and the human deception that comes with a godless life. And they got into the middle of it. And what happened to the walls of water then? Oh, they did come in. That's a symbol of judgment. The water, just like the waters over the earth when Noah lived through it, a symbol of God's judgment coming down on human presumption and human wickedness. And he wiped out every single one. That's how God's judgment works. It doesn't miss a name. The Israelites, flush with faith on the other side of the Red Sea, it says that they composed a great song to God and Moses composed it and Miriam, his sister, led the nation and the women of the nation in singing it and they danced on the shore of the Red Sea as the armor-clad Egyptians rolled up dead on the beach. And they saw God work. Oh, it's true. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. It was a mighty miracle for a frail people. <laughs> I like those stories because I'm a frail people, needing a big miracle in my life all the time. What's the sense of application? How does this play its way out into your world and mine? Well, some Bible students have seen that Egypt may represent the evil world we live in, a godless society. Pharaoh may even represent the prince of power, of the power of the air himself, Satan, behind it all and leading it all. And that Egypt represents every age of a God-hating world seeking to dominate or destroy the people of faith. It's an interesting thought. Can't prove it. But it does give rise to thinking about the fact that the Bible does say that if you're going to stand by faith in a God-hating culture, you'll, you'll absorb some of the hate that, that is directed toward God, doesn't it? Jesus himself said in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus predicted it. He predicted that there would be a reflex of blind hate toward believers, his disciples, whom he's speaking to in that moment. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. This isn't personal. It's hatred against God. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, you've escaped out of it. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's all about being allegiant to Jesus Christ. You'll be persecuted ultimately simply because you belong to him. But there's good news at the end of this passage. Many people miss it. It's what Jesus says in the same conversation he had with the disciples in verse 26. 
But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Don't worry when the time comes and persecution falls and you need to speak for me. Someone will speak through you for me, the Holy Spirit. Next verse. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Whenever you face the ultimate hostility of the world and you don't know if you'll be able to speak for Christ, someone will be there speaking through you and for you. That's your moment of crisis. God will do it. But it just reminded me that as the nation of Egypt hated the people of God, all nations without Christ, sooner or later, Jesus predicted, will rise up and hate against his people. It's unavoidable. Now we're not facing that in the measure that the other 360 million Christians around the world are today that I quoted in that report. But the water may be rising. The water may rise soon. Here's my word to us. Step into it. Move forward into it. Let God be with us and let God speak through us. He will be with us. That's one of the lessons I get. Here's a second one. This people, as they face their great challenge, as a people, they needed more than a miracle. They needed a man. They needed a person of faith. They wouldn't have crossed the river if Moses hadn't stood there and his faith hadn't been an example and he hadn't led the way with the staff out front saying, God has said, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. I believe him. And Moses stepped out. So what I'm saying is often the people of faith need leaders of faith. Sometimes it's a single man or woman who inspires the people of God and they move out. Faith-filled people are critical to the life of the church. Faith-filled people in one encounter can change your whole future. One of the, the pastors that I met in Jos, Nigeria on my time there. This was a very unusual trip. I was involved in, I was a Christian radio talk show host for a number of years. I worked for the Salem Radio Network, the largest Christian broadcaster in the world. I broadcasted in California. And uh, I was invited along with a number of other hosts from across the country to take a fairly secret trip to northern Nigeria in the time when the great persecution had begun to rise and many hundreds of believers had been massacred. It was in 2005 when I took the trip. Our itinerary was kept secret from us and from anybody else. We were guarded by the Nigerian police with full automatic weapons throughout our time from the moment the plane landed to the time we got back on board. We were at secure hotel settings with barbed wire ringing the top of the walls under tight security. Men and women who had suffered persecution were brought secretly from their locations. We met them under assumed names, no cameras allowed. And they were there to tell us their stories of surviving persecution so that we could go back on our radio programs and we could tell their story to the Christians of America so that we could raise funds to support and help rebuild the churches, help encourage the leaders, and more than anything else, to send Bibles to the people of northern Nigeria. Bibles were precious things, often one pastor in one village for hundreds of people only had one Bible. And so I went 
and I listened to the stories of these men and women, I was awestruck. Meeting pastor after pastor, these men would come and tell me the stories of their their suffering, but their vision to go back. I met many. I'll tell you just about one. He was a younger pastor in the group. I met him on the footsteps or, or the steps of the hotel where I was staying and then was in a meeting with him later. He went by the name Pastor Stephen. I don't know what his real name was. He had been a former, he had been an imam in his former life, fully convinced in the, in the life of the Muslim faith. He had come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and had been miraculously saved. His story, as he told it to me, was that God had changed his life and God had moved upon his heart and urged him to go back to the... He had been a traveling kind of imam, a, a teacher in the Muslim faith. And he was led to go back on his own, living by miracle, to go back into the villages that he had influenced for the Muslim faith and to go back and to engage with the same villagers, to re-engage with them socially and to ask God to lead anyone to him who would want to know about Jesus. That's the most dangerous ministry you can imagine. But he told me the story of going back to place after place. He'd re-engage with them socially during the day, and then at night he would ask God to lead people, particularly young men who might be stirred by the Holy Spirit, to him at the fireside and to ask him about the God of the Bible. Person after person, young man after young man was led to him. And he led them to faith. He would secretly disciple them by night. He would open to them the New Testament that he had and show them the truth of the scripture. And when they were to disciple to a certain point or the danger grew too great, he would go on to the next village. He looked at me with a bright and shining eye and he said, I am certain that I will die soon. I'm certain I will die soon. But I can't imagine not offering myself to my Jesus for my people in any other way. Oh, how struck I was by his faith. Because you see, at that time, I was battling in God's will for my own life. I had been recalled into the ministry, the preaching ministry, the pulpit ministry, the church leadership ministry. But God had allowed me to be involved in radio ministry and it was flourishing and I was getting too wrapped up in the radio ministry and I was starting to ignore the call of God to come all the way back to this place, to the difficulties of true pastoring, to the spiritual warfare of true preaching in a people of God. And I was having it out with God. I was saying, God, I know you want me to go back to full preaching, but this ministry you've given me is so wide. There are thousands that I'm influencing. This has to be your will. It's unexpected, but radio must be what you have for me. And I'm sure I was also caught up in some of the celebrity of it and the ease of it. So there was the soul of a man sent to Nigeria, resisting the call of God, encountering person after person who had fully devoted themselves to the call of God. Day after day, I struggled with who I met and what I saw until the final night. I couldn't sleep all night, and I'm not known to be a devoted, on-his-knees man of prayer. I was on my knees that night, all night long, because the Spirit would not let me go. 
And I was praying and asking God, why won't you let me go from this? I was in battle over what I'd seen and what it meant until finally in the early morning in that hotel room in Joss, Nigeria. I seemed to know that if God were to speak a word to me, he would have said, so Joe, why aren't you out with your brothers? Why aren't you fully engaged in what I've called you back to? Why aren't you with your brothers? And I had to answer that with the call back that, Lord, I'm not willing, but I will be willing. I can't resist their example. And I came back a changed person. God allowed the radio ministry to go on in his own way, but it was, it was over that morning. Within two years, I was in a pulpit and I was preaching to a people of God. I remain preaching to a people of God. I'm so grateful for the honor in spite of the challenges. I might not be here today if I hadn't met Pastor Stephen that day. That's the point I'm making about the impact of a godly leader, a person of God. Who knows that you may not be on assignment from God to be that kind of person for a, a, a situation you don't even understand. Somebody battling for faith in your home structure, in your, in your family, somebody watching you from afar that you don't even know. God inspires faith in his people, often by the faith of one single person. Thank you for allowing me to be that personal this morning. I'm going to move quickly to the second. The walls of Jericho. <laughs> Let's go to the second and last story. I'm going to do this quickly. This is a story of when your back is against the wall of challenge. This is a totally different environment. Between verses 29 and 30, as we go back to Hebrews 11. Between verses 29 and 30, there's actually 40 years of unrecorded time. Did you know that? Verse 29 is the first generation of Israelites that were released from Egypt, that were sent to Canaan, that were given the call and the promises, but they were a rebellious generation. Their faith, which was at the high water mark, pardon the pun, at the Red Sea, after that, declined rapidly. And within days, they were rebelling again against the hardship of the journey. They rebelled against God multiple times, questioned God many times. They refused to go forward when they got to the edge of Canaan some months later. They refused to go in. They were too afraid. And so God said, if you're not going to walk by faith, I'm going to let you wander like you want to. I'll send you back into the desert and you can wander for 40 years and your generation will die out in unbelief and I'll raise up a new generation that aren't tainted by your, your, your godlessness and your unbelief. And that new generation I'll lead back to the edge of Canaan again 40 years later and I'll lead them into the promised land. And that's exactly what happened between verses 29 and 30. Why isn't it recorded in the hall of faith in Hebrews? Why did he leave out that set of history? Because there was no faith in it. And this chapter is written to confirm, to confirm faith and praise faith. They were not believing. Well, now we have a new generation. They're back on the edge of Canaan. They not only have a new generation of people, there's a new leader among Israel. Moses had gone, gone on to be with the Lord. There's a new leader. Joshua is his name. God brings them 
up to the edge of Canaan again. He gives them a new miracle. The first generation got the Red Sea miracle. Here, in, 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 you'll read in the book of Joshua that they were allowed to miraculously cross the River Jordan to get into the edge of Canaan. At high flood season, when no human being would cross it, God miraculously parted the waters for them. So they had a new miracle. It was a new age of people. And they were given a challenge. The challenge was to take a fortress. So here's the story. They got to the edge, and the first place they had to take militarily was a fortress city called Jericho. Now, the people of Israel had never even seen a fortified city, let alone taken one in battle. They were an inexperienced group of people. They had hardly won any battles. They didn't know how to fight. They didn't know how to lay up siege walls and throw the ladders up and do everything else that they would have to do. Jericho was a formidable city. There were actually two sets of walls, archaeology tells us, an outer set to to take the first attack and a high wall up to 40 feet that was wide enough to run a a, a chariot across the top, very thick, very high. It was a walled city and it was basically regarded as not breachable in that time. Now Israel figures out that they've got to trust Joshua and his leadership. Joshua sends out spies into the town. We'll find out about that next week. But he also starts to formulate an assault plan. He's out looking at the walls of the city at night and God speaks to him and appears to him. The angel of the Lord comes, the captain of the army of the Lord, and says, Joshua, I know you've got your strategies. I'm here to tell you God's strategy. The father says, listen, this is what you're going to do. You aren't going to mass your armies. You're not going to get siege machines. You're going to simply get some priests, Put them out in in the front of a column. Give them the horns to blow that signify the holiness of God is here. Then you're going to follow them with the Ark of the Covenant being carried by the priests, which shows God's presence and power, his holiness. Then you're going to follow them with some of your troops, not all of your troops, as at the end. You're not going to attack. You're going to walk around the city once every day for six days. Wasn't a big city. Took about 30 minutes for them to walk around it. The scientists or the scholars estimate So they did that. Every day you weren't supposed to lift a sword or anything. You're supposed to go around for six, for for 30 minutes and then go back to your camp. They did it one day after the other, after the other, after the other. God says on the seventh day, I'm going to make you walk around it at the end of your circle. Then the priest shall blow one loud blast on their trumpets. And then all of you guys that are gathered there are going to shout. And that's it. The walls will fall down they'll collapse. Joshua's amazed, but he obeys. He leads the people to their credit. It says by faith, they did walk around the walls. They did have enough faith in that generation. And the Bible says the walls fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. Their first challenge met by faith. Powerful story. What's the sense of how this could apply to your life? We'll study it more next week, by the way. There's some more fascinating things that archaeologists have discovered about that city and about another person who lived in it. There was not only faith outside the walls of Jericho that day, there was faith inside the walls in the life of a woman named Rahab. We'll get to her next time. But what does this, as I close, give you as a sense of how you could apply this? I think this passage shows us that God wanted to show his people that in any and all of their challenges, he would fight for them and win for them. Same thing as the Red Sea. 
He wanted to show his people that in any or in all of their challenges, God himself would fight for them and win for them. They just had to take a walk in that by faith. He basically is saying, listen, when you face this challenge in my will for your life, you walk, I work. That's how it goes. This isn't on you to achieve. It's not on you to fix. It's not on you to overcome. You walk in the way I'm telling you to walk, and I will work in a mighty way. That's the way it is in everything in the Christian life, my friend. I'm so glad this is here for our instruction. Whatever challenge you may experience, you may be experiencing a professional challenge right now. May affect how you walk in faith in your business, or it just may be a challenge about keeping your business afloat to provide for your family. And panic sets in on a regular basis every 30 days when you're trying to hit payroll. And you're looking at this saying, how in the world am I going to meet this challenge? And you're thinking about all the strategies and all the ways you can restructure and everything you can do with pricing or everything else. And guess what, my friend? You can walk in that, but you have to look to God to work in that. God is the one you need to look to to work out your challenges. I don't care what they are. You have the great privilege as a Christian of trusting him in it. I don't care what it is. Maybe you're trying to build a successful marriage. Maybe that's the the challenge that God has laid on you, and you've got a background of complete non-success in marriage. Maybe it's a remarriage for you, and and you're trying to overcome the things that you fear the most that you may bring spring-loaded into this new marriage, and it's beyond you. You don't know the code. God says, you walk, I work. You trust me in this. You live a godly life. You trust me. You learn to labor in prayer for this. You walk, I work. Maybe you're in a situation with extended family where because of your convictions and we have a new rising secular culture that, that kind of goes to anger first instead of reasoning about things, maybe they have cut you off. You've kind of been what we call canceled today either online or maybe at family gatherings. They've, they've shut you down because of their view of what you believe. And you're trying to figure out all the ways to rebuild the bridge, to get over to the other side again, to make it like it was. And, you're, and, and I understand all those impulses, but maybe God is saying to you today, listen, give up fighting, give up debating, and start walking in faith. And start walking in love for them. Start walking in prayer for them. Start accepting this as from God for the time being. But God said, listen, you walk, I work. That's the lesson of Jericho. And God is so good because if you're his, he will regularly give you things that have Jericho-sized walls that are way past your experience level that intimidate you and you see no way that the walls will come down. God says, you walk in what I show you, I work.